Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab a Bible? We are going to continue on in our series on 1 Thessalonians, and we are in chapter 5 this morning. And the text is chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 11. So we've been working through this letter for quite some time. The first three chapters were explicit thanksgiving. Paul has come to this church through letter, encouraging these believers, building them up, showing them the grace of God that is at work in them and in their midst. And then when we moved into chapter four, Paul turns to pastoral instruction. He started with talking about sexual immorality and how we live in holiness. He then turned his attention to love and how we ought to live in love towards each other. And then he's turned his attention finally to the, to the biggest matter above all. He's been preparing us for this throughout the letter, the coming of Jesus, and how we should understand it and how we should live in light of it. So Paul last week declared his theology about Jesus' coming, and now he's going to give us instruction about how to live in light of his coming. So hear God's word, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Oh, Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning? Amen. So we are looking at the end of all things. And as we think about that, Christians have been known to do some pretty strange things. Sometimes Christians get a bit eccentric. One example that comes to mind is Y2K. Some of you are too young to remember this for sure, but it was thought as we moved into the new millennium, moving from 1999 to the year 2000, that all the computers in the world would suddenly go haywire, and as a result of all the computers going haywire, when the clock switched, that the world would be thrown into confusion and chaos and darkness. 
And now that we sit here in 2023, that seems really silly and strange to even believe something like that could happen. But I knew some Christians who during that time took Y2K as a various serious threat. And so they were prepared. They thought darkness, confusion, chaos was coming. And so what did they do? They bought up vast supplies. They bought generators and gas cans. They even had MREs batteries, all sorts of things. They were stocked. They were ready for the chaos. Of course, when New Year's came and the clocks and the calendars switched from 1999 to 2000, nothing happened. The power didn't go out. The banks weren't emptied. The computers didn't fritz, but life just kept moving on. The first day of of 2000 was like the day before, like the year before. Time just kept carrying on. And Y2K ended up just being a bunch of hype and strangeness. And a lot of people spent a lot of money for no good reason. Now, my family didn't become preppers, but I do remember my parents stocking up on shelf-stable food. We would have ate all of that food, but I remember them buying more than usual just in case something might actually happen. And the only exception to all the normal food that my parents bought extra was they bought several boxes of dehydrated milk, several of them. And so as time went on, the world didn't come to an end, and so we ate up all of that shelf-stable food. It's a good idea. You just bought food, you're going to eat it later, except those boxes of dehydrated milk. They sat there on the shelf in the pantry, and they sat there comically for Years And what would happen as time passed by, as a few years passed by, you'd be sent on an errand by mom, go to the pantry and get this. And every once in a while, when you went into the pantry, you would spot those boxes of dehydrated milk, and it became an inside joke. We would laugh as we remember all of the craziness of, of Y2K. And even to this day, I still remember those boxes of milk, and they remind me of the craziness of those days. Now, I bring up all of this, why? Because our text, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5, are all about preparation. Paul writes these 11 verses so that we, the people of God, would be prepared for Jesus' return. So going back to last Sunday, Paul has taught us about this day. With plain language, he has told us that on a certain day, at a certain time, a date and time that no one knows, Jesus will descend from the heavens. A cry of command will be given. The dead in Christ will be raised, and all of Jesus' people will be swept up to meet Jesus, to welcome in his eternal reign over all things. That was good news. Precious good news. And that theology that Paul gave us last week means something for us. It means we have something to do in light of that theology. And so as we look at our text this morning, there are imperatives everywhere. Some of them are explicit and some of them are implied as you take in the text. So Paul commands us. He's saying to us in these verses, don't be surprised. Don't walk in darkness. Don't fall asleep. Don't get drunk. Instead, you must stay awake. You must be alert. You must be sober. You must keep control of yourself. You must put a helmet on your head to protect you. You must strap on a breastplate over your heart. You must do all of these things. And as we take in all of these commands in these verses, we see something. 
And it doesn't take too much effort to see it or too much insight to see it. We see this. Paul really wants us as God's people prepared for the return of King Jesus. If you were picturing this in your mind, Paul is there at a desk, sitting on the edge of his chair, writing, and he is writing intently. His blood pressure is probably a bit elevated as he scribbles off command after command after command, and he is doing this because he wants the Thessalonians, and in light of this letter, he wants all of God's people ready for Jesus. And so we need to be made ready for Jesus. And so we ask the natural question of Paul. Well, Paul, what do I need to do to be ready for King Jesus? So that's how we're going to frame our text. We're asking Paul this question. What do I need to do, Paul, to get ready for King Jesus? So Paul begins his work in our text, and he begins by telling us how we can get it all wrong, how we can screw it up. And so preparation for King Jesus can go wrong in one of two ways. First, you can fail by preparing for the wrong thing. So going back to how I started, this is what happened at Y2K. People spent all sorts of money, all sorts of time, and nothing happened. They set their hope on an event that never came. And because they did that, everything, everything was a waste. So that's one way you can fail. The second way you can fail is through inadequate preparation. And so you can prepare for the right thing. You can know that something's going to happen, but you can inadequately prepare for it. For example, you know next week you have a big test. Your whole grade in your course rides on that test, but instead of preparing for that test, studying for it, memorizing the material, reading through the material, you sleep in, you play video games, you watch movies. And so the test comes, you knew it was coming, you take the test, you fail the test. And you fail the test because you didn't prepare for the test. And so Paul, in these verses, works to combat both of these errors in us. So let's look at the first error. You can fail by preparing for the wrong thing. So when Paul went to Thessalonica, he came to the city proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. He proclaimed that Jesus died and rose again, and he he explained the entailments of those events. That's your salvation. And he also asserted boldly, Jesus is king rights. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And certainly Paul preached in his preaching that this Jesus who died and rose again would return to the earth and judge both the living and the dead. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 17, we learn about what happened when Paul preached the gospel there. Paul's preaching stirred everything and everybody up in Thessalonica. We can just summarize the story. As Paul preached the gospel, the people who were listening, for the most part, hated what Paul was saying. And so in Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, a bunch of people bring charges against Paul and the Christians, and we find these charges in Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7. The text says, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so as we listen to this story, we see that these Thessalonians, for the most part, as Paul preached the gospel to them, didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus or his gospel. 
In fact, in our text, Paul gives us another one of their responses to the preaching of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 17, they're upset, saying they're, they're, they're disobeying Caesar. And here in our text, verse 3, many of the Thessalonians are saying this in response to the preaching of the gospel. There is peace and security. There's peace and security. And essentially, many of the Thessalonians were saying this. Caesar is Lord here. The Pax Romana, it's secure. The empire is stable. Everything is is well here. Don't tell me about this Jesus. Don't tell me about this day of the Lord. Don't tell me about this man from the backwaters of Palestine who you say died and rose again and who you say will judge the living and the dead and who you say I must submit to in everything of my life. Don't tell me about this Jesus. Why? Because there is peace and security here. Caesar is Lord all is well. And so what is the error here that Paul is trying to work against? Well, you see it clear. These Thessalonians refused to take hold of the truth that Jesus was coming. He was going to return. They couldn't see the threat, and so they wouldn't act. And instead, they said, there is peace and security. Now, as we think about it, this error still exists today. It's still an error that we can fall into, and it's the error of unbelief. We can just flat out disregard the truth that Jesus will return. And this is a threat that, that pops up, a threat so important that in the scriptures we find warnings about this. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 gives this warning to us. Peter writes, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And you see how the scoffing goes. They say, well, today was just like yesterday, which was just like last week, was just like a year ago and like a century ago. It's all the same. Where is the promise of his coming? Here's the thing. When you are scoffed at for believing in the return of Jesus, when people say, where is the promise of his coming? When you are met with the words that the Thessalonians were met with, there is peace and security. We must shun all of the scoffing and the rebuttals because we know God has said that his son will indeed return. And it is our job as God's people to believe that truth and not to commit this error. So that's the first error we can commit. We can, we can err by preparing for the wrong thing. And there's a second error. We can fail through inadequate preparation for the right thing. So Paul tells us that Jesus' return will be sudden and unexpected. Twice in our text, Paul compares Jesus' return to what a thief does at night. Look at verse 2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But even though it's unexpected and sudden, there is one piece of information that we know as Christians. It is this, Jesus will come. He's going to come. We know it. And because we know it, we should not be surprised. Paul says this in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And then Paul goes on to say this. Look further down in your Bibles, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
Paul is pointing out an error that God's people can commit. What is the error here? It's this. It is knowing that Jesus will return, but refusing to live according to that knowledge. And Paul likens this refusal to sleeping and drunkenness. Instead of getting ready to meet Jesus, you know he's coming, you instead go to bed. Instead of getting ready to meet Jesus, you know he's coming, you open up the bottle and you get drunk. And in using these words, drunkenness and sleep, Paul is teaching us that the way we refuse to live according to the knowledge given us in the scriptures is we live insensibly to it. The sleeping man is insensible. The drunken man is insensible. And so what does this look like for us? Well, you can get drunk and fall asleep in many different ways. It could be literal drunkenness. You can cram yourself so full of alcohol, you become insensible to God in his ways. And in doing that, you make yourself unready for Jesus' coming. But we don't have to limit ourselves to drunkenness literally. It could be greed. You live for the accumulation of wealth. Wealth is what gets you up in the morning, the pursuit of stuff. That makes you unready for Jesus. It could be anger and bitterness and envy. Your soul is just bent towards the destructions of others. You picture that person in your mind and you hate them. And that makes you unready for Jesus. Or it could be sexual immorality. There's lust in your soul and it rages, it controls you, it dominates you and you obey its passions. And if you obey its passions, you are made unready to meet Jesus. And here's the punchline that Paul wants us to see. If you give yourself over unrepentantly to sin, what you are doing is you are refusing to prepare for the coming of Jesus. What you are doing instead of getting ready to meet Jesus, you're going to bed and you're getting drunk. And this is such a help to fight our sin. We, we can think through our sin with this, with this category in place. Is this activity, is this deed going to make me ready to meet Jesus? Or will it not? Will I be getting ready or will I be going to sleep? Will I be getting ready or will I be getting drunk? And Paul gives us a big help here. So we have these two ways before us. And we have to ask, well, what does all of this mean for the ill-prepared? If I commit these errors, what does that mean for me? Well, Paul doesn't mince words. To not be ready for Jesus is loss. And there will be no way to remedy the loss of what you have done. There is no last-minute fix or course correction. Listen to verse 3. It is so somber, but it's true, and we have to receive it for, it is for our good. Paul says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape. But as we look at our text, our question still stands. Paul, how do we get ready to meet Jesus? I don't want to commit those errors, but Paul, what do I need to do in the positive? What do I need to pursue? And Paul gives us two directions. The first direction is this. You must know who you are. If you want to be ready for Jesus, you need to know who you are. So look at, the, look at your Bibles. Paul writes, verse 4, you are not in darkness. Verse 5, you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 8, we belong to the day. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of who they are. 
the Thessalonians belong to the light and to the day. And because of that, in consequence, they have nothing to do with the night or the darkness. And what is Paul talking about with these words? Light, darkness, day, night. Well, Paul is very simply reminding them of what has happened to them in the gospel of Jesus. What's happened to the Thessalonians? Well, they were made alive together with Jesus. They were freed from the power of sin. They were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. They were ransomed from their futile ways by the precious blood of Jesus. They were brought into the family of God and given new titles. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. That's who they are, and that's what Paul is doing as he is saying, you are of the light. You are not of darkness. And so what do we need to do to prepare for Jesus' coming? We need to know who we are. Now, this has a few layers to it. We must prepare for Jesus by knowing exactly where we stand with Jesus. Do you want to be ready for Jesus? You need to know where you stand with Jesus. So I ask you, have you been made alive with Jesus? Have you been freed from the power of sin? Have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son? Have you been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus? Have all of your sins been forgiven? Do you belong to the family of God? Do you have the title son, daughter? Do you know where you stand with King Jesus? And this is so important. It might strike us as such a simple thing, but how are you gonna meet Jesus in his glory if you don't know where you stand? with Jesus now. You need to know where you stand with the king. And we can add another layer to it. You must know what you have become in Jesus. In Jesus, hear this, brother, sister, you are dead to sin and alive to God. That's who you are. In Jesus, you are are free from the dominating and controlling power of sin and all its lusts. You have been set free. In Jesus, you are a citizen of a kingdom of righteousness and light because Christ has come and he has removed you from the kingdom of darkness. Hear this. In Jesus, you are reconciled to God the Father, and there is nothing that separates you from him. His heart is for you all the way. In Jesus, you belong to the family of God. Your title is son, heir of eternal life, daughter of God. That's who you are. And if you want to be ready for Jesus, you need to know who you are in Jesus. You must study it. It would be such a worthwhile study just to crack open your Bible and read through every one of Paul's letters and take a highlighter and just highlight every time Paul describes who a Christian is or what a Christian is. And what you'd find as you highlight through Paul's letters is that your Bibles would just be streaked with yellow, verse after verse after verse. And the reality is that Paul spent much of his ministry just reminding Christians of who they were Letter after letter, he's reminding Christians of who they are. And so if we want to be ready for Jesus, we need to know who we are, exactly who we are, not confused by it. And so that's Paul's first direction. You need to prepare for Jesus by knowing where you stand with Jesus and what has become of you in Jesus. And Paul gives us a second direction to add on to the first you must act. You must act. 
and you have to act according to who you are. And so this is where we find Paul's commands, and they just come after us. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So Paul is calling us to act according to who we are. Since we belong to the day, we should act like we are awake. We shouldn't be found sleeping, or even worse, we shouldn't be found drunk and insensible. That's not what you do during the day if you belong to the day. Rather, if you belong to the day, what what do you look like? Well, you're marked out by alertness. You're marked out by self-control. You're marked out by being awake. And so as we think about what Paul is saying, as we're looking at all these metaphors that Paul uses, it should be no mystery as to what Paul is calling, calling us to. To be awake, to be sober, to be alert, is to be a man or a woman pursuing Christian virtue with all vigor and determination. That's what it looks like to be awake. You are pursuing Christian virtue. And look at verse 8, because Paul ties all of his argument together in one verse. This would be Paul's theme verse for this text. So he writes in verse 8, he begins. How does he begin? He reminds the Thessalonians of who they are. So he says, but since we belong to the day. So he's saying, you belong to the day. And then after reminding them of who they are, he what? He calls for action. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. You belong to the day, act like it. And what does it look like to act like you belong to the day? Well, Paul continues writing, he says, modifying his command, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. What does it look like to be awake and sober? It looks like to be a person pursuing those things at the end of verse 8. And we should rejoice over verse 8 because it gives us clarity. You should hear this and rejoice to prepare for Jesus. You don't need to do anything that's brand new. You don't need to become an eccentric. You don't need to indulge in some act, strange act, like like digging a bunker for yourself or, or buying MREs or getting generators and gas. Paul is telling us how we get ready for Jesus. How do we do it? Well, the day-to-day work of getting ready to Jesus is this, the pursuit of faith and hope and love. We have to put these virtues on. We have to wear them. We have to seek them. We have to, to, to wear them in such a way that they actually begin to protect us like a helmet does and a breastplate does. And this means we have work to do. It means we have specific work to do to get ready for Jesus. Look again at Paul's commands. There's negative commands. So he says, let us not sleep, verse 6. And there are also positive commands. He says in verse 6 again, let us keep awake and be sober. What is this work that Paul is talking about? Well, we are to pursue these virtues, but we are to do that with attentiveness and vigilance and perseverance. You don't pursue faith, love, and hope just once and you're good. You just don't put on these virtues once as your helmet and your breastplate and you're good. No, you put them on every single day of your life. You keep pursuing them. You don't take a vacation from them for a week or two weeks. But we keep at faith and hope and love. It is our calling every day to pursue these virtues. And so there's Paul's second direction. We must act. So we've been plowing through the text of Scripture. We've got most of it in front of us. And at this point, I want to stop. I want to assess 
and move forward. And so what do we know? We ask Paul, well, what do we need to do to prepare for Jesus? And so we've seen this in the text. Paul wants us ready for Jesus. And so he told us how we can get it wrong. We can get it wrong by preparing for the wrong thing. There's peace and security. Where's the promise of his coming? We also can get it wrong by looking to the right thing but not actually preparing for it and instead getting drunk or falling asleep. But then Paul has given us two positive commands. We need to know who we are in Jesus. Children of the light, children of the day. And then we need to act accordingly. Now as we think about all that we've worked through, it is all crystal clear. What do you need to do as a Christian to get ready for Jesus? It should be clear for you. The path ahead is straight. But here's the thing about all of Paul's commands. They are really difficult. This is difficult work. It's simple, but it's hard. It's hard to pursue faith, love, and hope every day diligently. And they're difficult because we are embedded in a world that is asleep and drunk and really likes being asleep and drunk and preaches to us every day, you too should be asleep and drunk with us. It's great. Join in. And if we're being honest with ourselves, there are times when we too just want to be asleep and drunk with everyone else. There are times when we're tempted and swayed by our hearts, pulling us away from the path of faith, hope, and love. And we say to ourselves, I just want to indulge in something else for a bit. I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm worn. And so Paul has given us this clear path, and we ask as Christians, well, how in the world are we to keep at it? How are we to stay on it? How do we prepare for Jesus day in, day out, week after week, until Jesus comes in his glory or we die? How do we do it? Well, Paul shows us the way. Look again at your Bibles. Verse 9, verse 10. Paul writes, these are the best words he has. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Do you see what Paul is doing? We don't keep faith, love, and hope by focusing on faith, love, and hope. No, we keep faith, love, and hope. How? By focusing all of our attention on the wellspring of faith, love, and hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is pushing these Christians towards being awake, being sober. And how does he do it? He prepares them by preaching the gospel of Jesus to these Christians. Christians one more time. So Paul, in fact, is preparing us to meet Jesus in verses 9 and 10. How does he do it? Well, he begins by reminding us of God's sovereign choice. When we were running headlong towards destruction, we chose that path. We committed sin. We were to be destroyed for it. We wanted it. God did something marvelous. What did God do? In his sovereign mercy, he came to us and he said, no, you will not be a vessel of wrath. You will not be destroyed in your sin. No, your destiny will be this, salvation. And Paul tells us that God has purposed his people for salvation. And this purpose is not just well-wishing. I just wish that you might be saved. I really hope that that would be true of you. He actually, out of his purpose, procured salvation for his people, and he did it through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Specifically, he did it through the death of his son. He set forward Jesus to be a bloody sacrifice for us, suffering in our stead that we might be forgiven of every sin, redeemed from all lawlessness, and made perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And all of this, as Paul writes, God's determination for us that we would not suffer wrath, God's determination for salvation and his his giving of the son means something for us. It comes to us with a certainty. Do you see it? So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Do you hear that? Because of God's determination and what Jesus did on the cross, your future is absolutely secure. When Jesus comes, whether you're in the ground six feet under or whether you're walking on top of the ground, your future is Jesus forever. You see what Paul's doing. He wants these Christians to be awake. He wants them pursuing faith and hope and love. And what does he do? He says, brothers and sisters, hear the gospel from me again. This is what you need to live. And this is what we need to live. How are we going to maintain faith and hope and love? How are we going to keep sober and awake? What is going to guard us? Well, it's this gospel of grace. That's what keeps us awake and guards us. So what are we to do with this gospel? Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We have something to do with this gospel. Paul preaches the gospel to the Thessalonians, and what does he want them to do with the gospel? He wants them to take that gospel and preach it to others. And so I want to close this morning with with three calls in light of verse 11 and verse 10 and verse 9. So three calls, three challenges in light of this so that you might be prepared to meet Jesus. The first call is this. Christian, if you want to be ready for Jesus, you must flood your heart and your mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must flood your heart and your mind with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what will make you ready for Jesus. Last weekend at the men's night, I did an informal survey. I listed off name after name and asking the guys to raise their hands if they listen to this guy or, or that guy, if they've been involved in that guy's content and if they've received it. And I wasn't surprised by the results. In fact, I expected them. But what I was, I was concerned by the results. And so this is aimed at the young guys or the men's night men, but this is for all of God's people. Are the voices you listen to So these voices that speak to you so often, influencing and motivating you, are they putting you to sleep or are they keeping you attentive to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, you might argue with me here. You might be arguing in your mind right now. You might say, well, well, Brad, those voices are really helpful, and they're helpful because they're picking apart the issues of our day. They're pointing out the sins. They're saying the emperor has no clothes on. I say, yes, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. They're right, and often what they're pointing out, I grant that, and I'm glad for it. But here's the pushback. Is it wise, and that's the key, is it wise to let voices, voices who have not bent their knee to King Jesus, voices who are really asleep and drunk because they're not awake to the reality that Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead, is it wise to let these voices have close and ready access to your heart. 
Is it wise? Will they make you attentive to the gospel of Jesus or will they put you to sleep like the rest of everyone else? And so my challenge is, can you find faithful cultural guides who critique and point out the follies of this world who have also, at the same time, bent their knee to King Jesus and are awake and sober because they know Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead? And I think you can. And I think it really matters. And if you need directions, I'll help you. But we need, we need those influencing and motivating us influencing and motivating us out of the realities that are ultimate, really ultimate. Jesus is coming. Second call. Here's the second call. You must flood your home with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we start with flooding our own minds with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we, we might be attentive to the gospel. And when we are made attentive to the gospel of Jesus, being ready for Jesus, we turn our attention to those nearest us first those in our home. And so we speak the word of the gospel to them. And, and dads and husbands, take the lead here. Speak the word of the gospel with your children. Oh, that someday when your children go up, they might say, my dad spoke the gospel with me. He was always speaking about the gospel of Jesus. Speak to the gospel to your wife. Speak it to those people in your influence who are, are near to you. And the same goes for wives and moms. Have a gospel word ready for encouragement. Slip it in there. Moms often just create the, the harmony, the melody of family life, and they can just make that melody, that harmony, a gospel word. And if you're a roommate, if you have housemates, you can carry the word of the gospel into someone's life, making them ready to meet Jesus. And so as we think about our homes, our preeminent desire ought to be this, that all of the people in our home are made ready for King Jesus, and we do that by speaking the word of the gospel to those who are in our home. Third call, last call. Flood this church with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has been preached this morning to you. You've heard it. It's ringing in your ears, or it should be. But hear this, that isn't enough for our church. The speaking of the word of the gospel is, is good and grand from the pulpit, but there needs to be more speaking. Every single member is called to proclaim the glories of God. And Paul himself recognizes this. What does he say to this church? He says, encourage one another and build one another up. He's saying you all have a piece to play in this. You all need to be at this. And so what is our desire as a church? Our desire is that we would all all of us together be ready for Jesus, that no, not one of us would be asleep or drunk. And so what are we going to do? Well, we should do this. We should speak the word of the gospel. So I challenge you today, speak the word of the gospel to someone today. Send a text message. Pick up the phone, write an email, walk across the room today in this room and speak the word of the gospel to someone. Helping them keep awake and be sober and diligent because this is the way God has called us to ready ourselves for the coming of his son. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess that we need these instructions. It is so easy to become sleepy at the wheel. And so, Father, we pray, wake us up. Wake us up to the great reality that Jesus is coming. 
keep us attentive and awake? Would you make us messengers of the gospel of Jesus? And would you fill our hearts with concerns for those people who are in our family, those people who are in our church? And Father, I pray that you would, you would translate that, that, that desire into action, that we might actually go and help our brothers and sisters get ready for Jesus. Would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name.
brothers and sisters receive this word of blessing. May the God who said no to your destruction, may the God who determined you for salvation, may the God who gave his son for your life now keep you awake and sober and self-controlled so that you might be made ready to meet Jesus in his glory. Go with joy and hope and faith and love in increasing fashion today. Go in God's peace. Amen.